powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello, everybody. Hi. Thank you, everyone. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before I want to jump into the episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Allison Hayslip. Not only was Allison's episode so well received, but also cracked the top 10 most downloaded episodes in the history of the Derek Duvall Show. I hope everyone that listened enjoyed it. And Allison, if you're listening, thank you ever so much for being so gracious with your time. Okay, folks, welcome to episode 115. We have a great episode lined up for you today. We have on the show acclaimed author, Jennifer Style. She is going to be talking to us about her work in literature, her incredible time as a journalist, and telling an absolutely crazy story of her COVID-19 experience. She is absolutely incredible woman, very well-traveled, and in the 30 minutes I got to speak with her, I could tell this lady has already lived an extraordinary life. We should all be so lucky, folks. Let's go ahead and get her on out here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome all the way from London, England, acclaimed author, Jennifer Style. Hello, good morning. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today? Um, the weather here is gorgeous. It is cool and breezy, and I'm so relieved. I can't yeah. even tell you. It's been a hot summer here in London, so and I'm a rainy weather person. So. so I start my interviews with the same question, and that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? It has been, as it is, I imagine for most people, challenging. When the pandemic was just getting rolling, so March 2020, I was living in Uzbekistan with my husband, Tim, and my daughter, Theodora, and my husband works for, he's a diplomat so he works for the british government and so that's what took us to uzbekistan but as soon as covid started circulating uh, the foreign office decided to evacuate me and my 10 year old then 10 year old daughter so they evacuated us to london um with about two days notice and we said well but we don't have a place to live in london and could we please go to our only permanent home which is in france and they said no we're not going to cover your evacuation um, if you don't come to London. And we said, well, it's the middle of the first lockdown and we don't have anywhere to go. And they you know, basically said, tough, that's where you're going. So I was lucky in that through a fellow writer, I was able to find a flat in a really lovely part of London. And, and so it all worked out. And we were in London for five months without my husband um, and it was, you know, a bit of an adjustment like it is for so many people, because my daughter, who was 10, had never been on a screen of any kind. So she'd never been on a phone or an iPad or a computer or anything like that. And strangely, had never 
asked to be on one. So she just had no experience with with that kind of technology. And suddenly she was supposed to go to school online, but we didn't have a spare computer. So she was using my phone to go to school. And I was wow. I was working full time. And so I was teaching an MFA program in Philadelphia online. I was releasing a new novel into the world and doing book event promotions. And I'm also doing a full time PhD. And so doing all that while suddenly alone with my daughter who really needs me and doesn't have anyone else because we weren't allowed to socialize like everyone. Um, so, so that was quite tough, but there were some perks in that, you know, I did get some nice time with my daughter and my husband who was back in Tashkent, we were separated from him for 11 months and we did uh, make dates to watch theater online. So the national theater moved their theater productions online. And so we would, pick a production we wanted to see and then we watch it together so we could, you know, chat about it while we did that. So it was, you know, there were some, there were some nice things some nice times with my daughter, but I think it was really hard for her, you know, being 10 and not being able to see other kids was the worst. And then being separated from my husband was hard. And when school started again and we still weren't allowed back, we then went to France for seven months waited until we were allowed to go back. And as soon as they gave us permission to return, I caught COVID and then gave it to my husband. And so. But make a nice recovery though from the COVID? Um, yeah, yeah, I did pretty well. Even now I don't taste things quite right. But my daughter had it too as soon as we got to London, but she recovered really quickly, so. That's good. Yeah. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like growing up there? Well, I was actually born in Boston, but my parents were living in Groton, which is a small town about an hour northwest of Boston. And yeah, I was their first child. So I have a younger sister, two years younger than I am. Um, so I grew up in a very pretty little town. And I think there was never a time that I didn't know I wanted to leave, not because there was anything particularly wrong with the town. I had a happy childhood. I had a fairly tranquil childhood spent a lot of time in the library. Um, but I just, I was a restless person and I, I wanted to see more of the world. So, yeah. yeah. But what led you to Sarah Lawrence? Oh, well, it was a long road to get to Sarah Lawrence because Sarah Lawrence is where I did my first master's degree, but I did my undergraduate degree at Oberlin College in Ohio. And I chose Oberlin because it had a really diverse student body. Um, it was strong in things that mattered to me, like English, and I thought I would study psychology. I ended up being a theater major because uh, that's where my passions lay, and I had plans to, great plans to become a star of the stage and screen. And so after that, I moved to Seattle and worked as an actor for four years, and then I started doing more writing. And that's when I applied to graduate schools and got accepted to Sarah Lawrence. So after living in Seattle for four years, I moved to New York, went to Sir Lawrence, and I went there because their MFA program had a really good reputation, and I knew that I'd be able to work closely with professors there in a way that might not have been possible at a larger program, and it was exciting to go to New York for the first time, and so, yeah, so that's how I ended up there, and, you know, there's other degrees after that, but I don't want to bore you. Oh, no. I was about to ask you, you know, your favorite memory from the University of Birmingham. 
Oh, so, well, I'm not quite finished with my PhD. I am so close to being done with my PhD. I mean, my favorite memory is just working with my supervisor on this last novel. And I've never had anyone to talk to while I'm writing a novel before. So it was a luxury to have this supervisor who was so intelligent and educated and who could challenge me about some of the decisions I made and who could say, have you thought about opening this door or this door over here or this door? And so he would never tell me what to do, but he would show me possibilities that I wasn't sure I knew existed. And then, you know, he's, I've also learned a lot about critical writing, which I hadn't done as much of. I mean, this was my fourth novel, but I hadn't done a lot of critical writing since my previous graduate school. So up until this point, what is the best advice that someone had given you? The best advice someone has given me, I guess, in terms of my writing, which is now my career, um, was when I was living in Seattle, I was out having a drink with a friend um, on an island off of Seattle. And I was telling him all about this story I wanted to write and my plans for this story and that story. And he said, you know, there comes a time when you have to stop talking about the story you're going to write and just write it. And I felt kind of, I felt rebuked and then quite rightly, because I hadn't written it. And so I went straight home and wrote the story because I felt so kind of guilty for not having done that yet. And it was true. I was talking about stories much more than I was actually sitting down and writing them. So that was pretty good advice that has stuck with me. I mean, that was back in the 90s. I got that advice and I still remember it. So how hard was it for you to get established as a journalist? Well, I mean, tough. Journalism's tough, especially now. You know, there's so fewer newspapers every day. So I went to the Columbia School of Journalism, which is where I did my second master's, and that really helped me get my first job in journalism. So I went from there to an internship in Massachusetts and then down to New Jersey. Um, and I was basically, I was working um, a beat which covered five towns. So it was a geographical beat. And that taught me kind of everything I needed to learn about how the world worked, how school systems worked, how police, um, how police offices worked, how um, the education system worked, and how hospitals are run, things like that. So I learned a lot about just the mechanics of life from working as a, a journalist, and um, ended up winning a couple of awards while I was there. But I then, you know, I worked as a journalist. I switched to magazines eventually, and then worked for magazines until I took over a newspaper in Yemen in. 2006. And I haven't lived in the U.S. since then. So, I mean, I've had kind of a twisty career in that it hasn't been a, a straight line. I've taken a lot of turns and moving to Yemen was a big one. But I ended up living there for four years. And that's where I met my husband, had my daughter, wrote my first book. So, nice. yeah. so in your time as a journalist, what is the best story you've ever covered? That's a tough one. The best story I've ever covered. Ooh, okay. So I think this was a really significant story. So my newspaper in New Jersey, The Daily Record, did a series on the heroin epidemic in Morris County, New Jersey. Now, Morris County is a pretty ritzy white Republican county, largely, um, not exclusively. And it was a county that didn't believe it had a drug problem. And yet, 17 people died of heroin overdoses during the, the first year I was working there. And so the newspaper did a series and each one of us was assigned to write about one of the people who died. And one of the, the reasons for doing this was to show 
how diverse the people who died from heroin use were. They were white, they were in their 50s, they were 19, they were you know, Asian, they were just from every race, every age group, every class, you know, it's just this touched all parts of society. So we wanted to kind of point out, you can't pretend this has nothing to do with you. You know, this is your community that this is happening in. Um, and so I, I was assigned a 19 year old boy um, who had died. And so one of the hardest things to do as a reporter and which most reporters have to do far too often is to approach parents who have lost a child. Um, and that's always really, really tough. But at the same time, you wanna do justice to their kid and their parents are the people who have most of the information about them most of the time. So I ended up becoming really close to this 19 year old's dad and spending a lot of time at his house and listening to him talk about his son. And he let me hang out in his son's room and introduced me to his son's best friend who played me the last message he'd left on his phone before dying. And so researching that story was really sad and, and, and tough, but I was really proud of what kind of we as a newspaper did with the whole series. I, I mean, I ended up interviewing another kid who had almost died. He ended up in with brain damage and in a wheelchair and living in a halfway house because of what heroin did to his brain. And, and he said, Jennifer, heroin killed my best friend and it almost killed me. And there isn't a single day that goes by that I don't want to do it again. Hmm. And I thought, you know, that's, pretty good message to put out there in the world. This is a powerful drug. You know, the experience is going to be great and you are not going to want to go off of it and you could end up like one of these people pretty easily. Yeah, totally understand. I have a friend of mine, um, he got it hooked onto heroin uh, when he got out of the Navy and um, he, uh, his mother passed away from it. Uh, he, he came very close and he is now, what year is this, 2022? Eight years, eight years clean. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good for him. It's yeah. tough, man. It I, is. Mean, I can't imagine recovering from that. So yeah, I totally understand. Now you are quite a celebrated author. What is your process for writing? Oh, well, the pro my process has varied depending on which book I was writing. So my first book was a memoir. So my process was pretty journalistic in a way, you know, I, I needed to, I was writing about my first year running this newspaper in Yemen. And I had um, something like 1,200 pages of journal that I'd written over the course of that year. So I had a lot of notes, but I also had to do additional research. I'd had to look into the history of Al-Qaeda in the region, for example. Um, so that was you know, doing the research. And then I knew I was only writing about one year. So my biggest challenge with that book was figuring out how to shape the story so how was I going to shape it? So it wasn't just January, February, March, you know, which would get pretty boring as a, as a structure. Mm -hmm. So to kind of shape it around, okay, here are what my female reporters are like. Here's my one best female reporter who is incredible. And here's the best story she ever did. And like, then here's why all the men sit around chewing cot in the afternoon, which is a, a green leaf that has a methamphetamine kind of effect, et cetera. So working on the structure of that and then cutting down all of my research to the requisite number of words, that was the biggest challenge there. But with that book, I basically it was just writing notes every single day um, and then organizing those notes. Whereas when I started writing my first novel, well, I'd written a novel before, but it was not publishable. And so it stays in a drawer. But so when I was writing my first novel after my first book had come out and, and done okay, um, 
I wasn't sure how to structure it. I didn't know how to structure it. And so I was writing it. I ended up writing that one in little scenes. And I think of them almost like each one was a playing card or each one was a quilting square. And then I would shuffle them around to get them in the order that made sense for the story I was writing. But I really kind of thought, okay, this is the scene I want to write right now. This is what I'm imagining. And then I would get a clear idea of the relationship between my characters and how I wanted that to unfold. And then, um, so that took me a while. Um, it took me five years to put that book together. It took me just one year to write the memoir and then another year to edit it. But with that first novel, it took me five years. And then, I mean, my daughter was also born right when I started writing it. Um, so, you know, there was a few, there were a few distractions. Um, <laughs> and then my most recent novel, Exile Music, took five years as well because it's, historical in that it's about Jewish refugees who fled Austria to go to Bolivia. Mm. And I had to research the Austrian end, the Bolivian end. I lived in Bolivia for four years. So I ended up writing that book because I met some of the survivors who were still there and interviewed them and got very interested in their story, which hadn't been written about in English in a novel at all. Um, there were, there were some beautiful memoirs out, but not a novel. And so I thought this, group of people deserves to have their history recorded it's this missing part of the diaspora and and so that's what inspired that book and so that book people always ask me if i research first or write first and i have to do them at the same time because i need to to be writing the narrative so that i know what research i need for example there's so much information in austria i could spend the rest of my natural life researching just the austria bit but i just needed to know the things that i needed for the purposes of my narrative and not more than that. So, you know, it was tough, but I mean, I, for that book, I had to research the music of the period, the history of the Vienna Philharmonic. I had to figure out where my characters lived. I had to know when specific operas were performed in the 1930s. I had to read biographies of Mahler. And then I had, you know, Bolivia, I had to research, you know, Imra folklore and, you know, the, the Jewish memories of, of the refugees who were there. And, uh, what the relationships were like between them and their Bolivian neighbors and et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot. So my process for writing that was more linear in that I knew I was starting in Vienna and ending up in Bolivia. And so I feel like my writing process, I, it always involves sitting down to write and trying to tackle either what scene comes next or the scene I'm most compelled to write. Um, and I have little notations I put if I know something's missing here that I want to fill in later, I just put TK, which is the copy editing symbol for something you're going to fill in later, and then write what I want to write, and then I'll go back to that another time. So sometimes I write linearly, but but not always. Okay, Deval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Jennifer Style. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long, deep breaths. You know, Clouseau Style. Please give your attention to a few friends of the show, and we will be right back. Are you tired of watching your beloved characters being tortured by careless authors? Are you sick of feeling like they could have swapped out all of the painful action and the plot would remain untouched? Subscribe to Books That Burn, the fortnightly book review podcast focusing on fictional depictions of trauma. We assume that the characters' reactions are reasonable and focus on how badly or well they were served by their authors. 
Join us for our minor character spotlights, main character discussions, and favorite non-traumatic things in the dark books we love. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Michelle Fabre, and you can hear my new single, Last Chance for Love, on Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Last chance for love, last chance for love, can we make it? Just tell me so. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, Sorrow, available on all major streaming platforms. And you can check my site out at patrickbakermusic.com. Don't leave my upper Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun with Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBALL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in operation enduring freedom, 
navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 115 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with acclaimed author, Jennifer Style. The Woman Who Fell From The Sky is one of your most celebrated releases. Uh, what was the response like when it came out? Well, that's a good question. I suppose it depends on which reader you ask. But um, the New York Times wrote a very nice review of it. Um, and the then managing editor of the New York Times uh, sent me my that first review engraved on a plaque. I'd, <laughs> I'd met him at a, a cocktail party and and I said, you know, I'd and then I had this great review. And so he made it, had a plaque made of it for me, which I thought was really nice. Um, so that was nice. I got some, you know, the reviews were really great. And I did a book tour for that book, which was really fun. It was my first experience doing a book tour. And there was some tabloid attention in London, which was really distressing and infuriating, which had nothing to do with the book, which had to do with my relationship with my husband and had... <laughs> And, you know, it wasn't published in the UK. They had no reason to write about it. And they basically said I'd written some tell-all about having sex with the ambassador, which is what my, the position my husband held when I met him. And there's no sex in it. I mean, if you go into the book looking for sex, you're going to be really disappointed because you're going to find the story of a newspaper and Yemeni reporters and what they were like. Um, and so that was distressing to have my first book misrepresented in the British press. But it's, you know, the Daily Mail. It's a terrible newspaper. Yeah. So. I remember growing up, it's, what was it, the Sun and the Daily Mail with the ones just, oh, yeah, not pleasant yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you do some teaching, if I understand. What kind of, what do you teach exactly? So um, I've done a, a, yeah, a fair amount of teaching. I teach, so I've taught at Rosemont College in Philadelphia. I used to teach their summer writing retreat. Um, and I taught short story writing there. I've also taught novel writing there. Um, and then they hired me when everything went virtual, that I was able to teach a full term there for the first time because I've always lived outside of the US. That's why I taught the short time. And then I got to teach a whole term when they were online and I taught master students in creative writing and I taught a class on creative nonfiction and historical novel writing. Um, I also teach one-on-one. -on -one. So with, I have some private clients, people who hire me to either edit their completed manuscript or to coach them through a manuscript, or I can help someone to write a book proposal, edit a book proposal, um, teach someone how to write a book proposal. I've also taught um, master classes all over the world in Algeria, Yemen, around the U.S. at various universities. I taught here in England at Bournemouth University for two years. So I taught undergraduates who were in their final year. I taught English and journalism majors. I taught a creative writing course for them. And that was focused around short story writing. But a lot of the things that I taught them would be applicable for any kind of writing. Things like, you know, the role of the scene and writing good scenes and scenes that are integral to the plot, et cetera. And then the second year I taught there, I taught the undergraduates again, but I also taught in their graduate program for they have a master's program in creative writing at Bournemouth too. And I taught there until we moved to Uzbekistan. Um, and then I had to leave Bournemouth. I do a lot of thesis advising, which I love. So people mostly with Rosemont College, but I did some for Bournemouth. 
I love doing that. And I also mentor. So I've mentored quite a bit through the, Asso- the Association of Writers and Writing Programs in the U.S. Um, and have mentored several writers through that program. And that was incredibly rewarding because I met people who were really amazing writers and human beings and with whom I stay in touch. Um, and so it's just, I feel like so many people have helped me in my writing career that it feels important to me to, to be a good member of the writing community and to try to help other writers as much as I can. That's awesome. That's really awesome. So you do speaking engagements all around the world. What do you enjoy about them? Well, I love the Q and a most of all. So, you know, I'm happy to always to talk about my own work because I think there are very few writers who don't like to talk about their latest book. Um, but I especially like hearing questions from the audience because then when I answer that question, I know that I'm talking about something that at least one person wants to hear um, and things they're curious about. And I got the best questions when I was on tour with The Woman Who Fell From The Sky because everyone was so curious about Yemen because most Americans don't really know much about Yemen. And they had great questions. And I get very excited when I talk about Yemen and my Yemeni reporters and um, my life there. It was a really happy time for me. Um, probably the fame, you know, one of my favorite countries I've ever been to. And so, you know, a lot of people are shy to ask questions of writers. And I hope that anyone who is will, will, you know, try to speak up in the future because, you know, we want to hear their questions and we are grateful when people ask questions. So you are fighting a very personal battle right now. My question to you is, how are you doing? I'm hanging in there. As background, in April, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So my family is currently posted to Uzbekistan. And I was in London for a different medical issue. And they discovered I had ovarian cancer. And so I haven't been allowed to rejoin my family. And so I'm alone in London. Um going through chemotherapy and hopefully surgery soon. Uh, and I don't know when I'm going to be able to go back to Uzbekistan to be with my husband and my 12 year old daughter. And so it's been really tough being apart from them. Um, my husband's been here more than my daughter has cause you know, uh, she has school and <clears throat> she was here for a bit of the summer, but then had to go back and, my treatment's also taking a lot longer than we thought. I was supposed to have surgery in July and they discovered right before surgery that I had no immune system or platelets. So I would have bled to death had they tried to do surgery then. So they've postponed it um, to give my immune system time to recover, which it seems to be doing finally, which is which is a huge relief. Um, so I think we will be able to schedule surgery um, soon. And I think the main thing that's been keeping me sane through the whole process, which has been pretty terrifying at moments, um, especially wanting to, you know, live long enough to raise my daughter, um, yeah. accompany my husband into old age, uh, is writing. So I keep a journal and because there's so many people to keep updated, there's so many people who, you know, family members, close friends who want to know how I'm doing that I have a caring bridge page. Um, I don't know, those of you who aren't familiar with Caring Bridge, it's it's a place where people who are ill or have friends or family who, who are ill, it's a place where you can post updates. So anyone who wants to check in on how that person is doing can go there and get the updates rather than 
you know, the ill person being overwhelmed with 500 emails they need to return. You can just put it all in one place and never, your friends can go there and comment and whatever. Um, so I <laughs> kind of done more posting there than, than I think is intended. And I've posted quite a lot of personal stuff there, but that's, I don't know if, I guess that's a way of communicating with my people. And also just the act of writing is something that makes me feel better and it helps me to process my thoughts and feel connected to people because feeling connected to people is really important to me right now. I've also been lucky in that several of my friends have come from South, from South Africa, from France, from the US, um, from all over to help look after me, which has also been nice. So that's awesome. Yes. Um, all my best to you on that one. That's, that's a tough, it's an uphill battle. And I feel, I feel for you. I really do. Thank you. Thanks. So what is next for Jennifer? Well, I have finished a new novel that is also set in Bolivia. Um, and it's about a queer underground, so mostly female. And it's it was inspired by a group of gay and lesbian people um, who were being interviewed by a documentary filmmaker I know in Bolivia about their experience being gay in Bolivia, which was not positive. While it is legal there now, it is not approved of by and large, and people can still get themselves killed just for being who they are. Um, so that novel uh, I am soon hoping to send out. And then I have a half-finished novel that's set in Uzbekistan, and that deals a lot with art and the environment and an environmental catastrophe that happened in Uzbekistan and kind of finding connections between those two things. So I'm trying to keep working um, when I can, when I have the energy, it makes me feel better to be working. That's awesome. So as we begin to wind down this interview, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Well, if you want to follow my adventures online, you could follow me on Instagram. So that's Jennifer F style. So Jennifer J E N N I F E R middle initial F for Florence. And then my surname S T E I L. So Jennifer F style is that is my Instagram handle. Um, you can look for me also on Twitter, which is um, at JF style seven. So JF style seven. My website is Jennifer style.net. Um, you can also go to Caring Bridge and just look me up, look for Jennifer Style if you want to hear how the cancer is going. Um, and then I'm on Facebook as well. And so you can just look for my name and find me. I've got two pages. One's supposed to be professional and the other personal, but I feel like they've kind of melded. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so you can find me any of those places. Yeah. <laughs> so I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? Please do whatever it is in your power to do to make sure that our kids and their kids have a livable planet. Um, this to me feels like the only issue that matters to me at the moment, because without a habitable planet, we don't have anything else. Um, and I'm, you know, quite distressed about the, the world that my daughter's growing up in. So if there's any way you can get involved with trying to reduce the use of fossil fuels, that is what I have to say to you. Awesome. Jennifer, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. I know it took a lot of stars to align to make this happen. So <laughs> all my uh, best, all my best for your recovery. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. You thank too. you. 
And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of episode 115. I want to thank Jennifer for taking the time to come on the show. As I said at the top of the show, Jennifer is an incredible woman. And I want to reiterate that Duval Nation joins me in wishing Jennifer a speedy recovery. Tune in again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duval Show has a great little store on there, and we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, you know how... Some couples go absolutely batshit in Target registering for wedding gifts. Well, we did the same by selecting which t-shirts we wanted on our show. And we have everything from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Pride shirts, Norm MacDonald, and so much more. Go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, and go to our banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on TeePublic. And we want to thank TeePublic again for being such great partners with us. Have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date when new episodes drop. Also, if you feel generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say, and believe me, we read every single review. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at The Director of All Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, it takes no effort to be kind. Try to find a way to do one positive thing for someone today with no expectation of a reward. You'll be amazed at how contagious that feeling you get can be. No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.